Hello and welcome. This is Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review about legal issues, prominent lawyers, and obscure blue book rules. I'm your host, Drew Padley, Editor-in-Chief of the Houston Law Review. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Vincent & Elkins, a global law firm with 13 offices and more than 750 lawyers committed to excellence in serving its sophisticated clients in industries such as energy, finance, technology, real estate, media, and beyond. V&E hires the best and brightest law students and lawyers, valuing diverse perspectives and backgrounds. Visit www.velaw.com to learn more about V&E's summer associate program and hiring opportunities. Start your success story at Vincent and Elkins. Today on the show, we have Judge Carolyn King of the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Judge King had a distinguished career as a corporate attorney here in Houston before being nominated by President Carter to sit on the Fifth Circuit, where she eventually became chief judge. Judge King is widely regarded as a trailblazer for women in the law and in the judiciary. With that, Judge King, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Judge King, before we talk about your judicial career, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your background. So can you tell me where you grew up and uh, what your early life was like? I was born in Syracuse, New York, uh, and lived in New York State until I was 12 uh, when my family moved to Milwaukee. And so I spent my high school years in Milwaukee. Um, I went away to college and then to law school And I really never uh, went back to Milwaukee except occasionally to visit my parents. So um, I really think of myself as someone from Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Upstate New York is a place that's changed a lot, I think, probably since that time. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely. Okay, I saw a quote when I was reading uh, about some information about you uh, where you credited your parents with uh, framing your view that women aren't really limited to certain roles. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? My mother and father were both lawyers. My mother graduated from law school in 1932 and practiced law for five years before hmm. uh, she married. Uh, and once she married, she had four children in five years, and so she uh, had no time uh, to practice law anymore. Hmm. Um, but I'm, I grew up in a family of lawyers and then my brother and my sister became lawyers. There were three of us. And, um, then of course I married lawyers. Hmm. So, um, and I have a son who's a lawyer. So, uh, I am, I am really truly from a family of lawyers. It sounds like it. Uh, I've never heard of uh, so many someone one person being surrounded with so many lawyers. That's so. right. <laughs> I bet it comes with its own set of unique challenges and it does. Uh, benefits. <laughs> uh, all right. So you mentioned that you went to college, uh, Smith College, and uh, what I read from what from your view on law school uh, was that initially you considered being a philosophy professor. Is that right. correct? That's right. And uh, and I really enjoyed philosophy. I enjoyed, well, I, my basis uh, was really in the foundations of mathematics, hmm. uh, but I enjoyed philosophy and I thought that would be wonderful to make a career out of. But the only thing you can do as a philosopher is teach. And I went to a meeting of the American Philosophical Society or some group like that, and I listened to a bunch of philosophers making, giving papers and so on. And what struck me, what came through was it a lot of what I heard was just incoherent. And I thought, 
I can't make my living in a field where a lot of the people are simply incoherent. Mm. And they would not think that that was uh, a criticism, I mean, or <laughs> disabling. I mean, they, it, did, it didn't seem to bother them, but it bothered me. So I needed to get into a field that had the same kind of logic to it, uh, but where there was a premium for coherence. <laughs> and that was really uh, law school. That's a, that's a great transition that you made in terms of what your future goals were. Um, what I thought was kind of astounding was that you, uh, the, at least in a U.S. Courts uh, article that I read, you said, as a fallback, you successfully enrolled in Yale Law School. That's right. a heck of a fallback. Right? It was. <laughs> it was. In fact, it was the only law school I applied to. Oh, wow. Um, and No, I applied to two. I applied to Yale and Cornell. Because when I applied, I had no intention of going to law school, and it was strictly a fallback. Mm. Uh, I applied for various grants in the field of philosophy and got lots of them, so I could have gone on in philosophy until I went to that fateful meeting where I listened <laughs> to those people who weren't making any sense, and I decided that probably wasn't a good way to spend the rest of my life. And so most people become interested in the law usually before they go to law school. But it sounds like uh, you weren't fully committed uh, to being a lawyer until um, a certain internship that you had in, in Washington, D.C. That's right. DC. That's right. Um, I certainly wasn't committed to practicing law. Um, I enjoyed law school. I mean, I, I did the, the reasoning and all the rest of it. That That was enjoyable. But I had no particular notion about what I wanted to do when I got out of law school. I went to work in the summer between my second and third year in law school for the Department of Justice. They had a summer honors program. In fact, I think the one that I attended was the first one they did. Um, and I, in the, I was assigned to work in the tax division for the summer. Um, but the people who came there for the summer had ample opportunity to talk to lawyers from the entire Justice Department. And I was fascinated by the Civil Rights Division because that was, remember, at the beginning of the 60s. And that was when the Civil Rights Division was growing into its ascendancy, you might say. And they were um, going all over the country trying to improve the civil rights of black citizens primarily, though we're all beneficiaries when civil rights are improved. Absolutely. Um, so I, uh, that, that summer in the Justice Department really persuaded me that being a lawyer was exactly right. That's what I wanted to do. And so it was more uh, the other uh, lawyering that you saw, uh, not necessarily within the tax division, but just just seeing this this wave of civil rights coming through the DOJ, and and that sort of gave you an impression of what could be done with a uh, as a practicing lawyer. Right. Okay. It did, and and for the good of the order, you might say. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who were working to improve the world that we live in, uh, and I hadn't ever thought in those terms. I guess I that doesn't speak well for me, but. Um, but I really became a believer that summer uh, in what you could do to improve the world that you live in. Okay, and then when you graduated from law school, uh, I think you had applied for a position with the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, here in Houston, right? Yes, that's right. 
And and so did you get the job? No, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I remember when I was at the Department of Justice that summer, uh, and I told them they wanted me to come back and work there when I graduated. And I said, well, no, I was moving to Houston. And they said, well, we have a very unusual U.S. attorney in Houston uh, and another unusual one in Dallas. There are two two U.S. attorneys that broke the mold. And um, so I, you know, we'll, we'll recommend you hmm. for a job with the U.S. attorney in Houston. But he pays no attention to us, so... You know, don't don't take that as a promise that you're going to get a job. So I went and interviewed the U.S. attorney, who was Woodrow Seals, uh, and who became a federal district judge. Um, when I when I walked in, he said, "Now don't get me wrong, ma'am. I've hired me," and he used a racial epithet. And he said, "I've hired me a meskin." I wasn't sure what a meskin was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what he was talking about. But I ain't up to hiring me a woman yet, and that, mm. that was it. I mean, it was very nice, but he ushered me out, wow. turned me down cold. Um, we became ultimately very close friends. He, mm. he was here in this building, and uh, he used to come in through that door over there, and he'd come and sit down. And he, he had a way of picking up all the rumors and all the funny things that were going on in this building, of which I might add there are a large number. <laughs> and uh, so he would walk in the door and start in on his latest story. And it was he was a wonderful man, a very kind person, mm -hmm. even though he didn't hire me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always a good type of person to keep around, someone who has their ear to the street. And, yeah, and can sort yeah of... he did. Yeah. Uh, all right, so instead of working at the U.S. Attorney's Office, then what did you do? Um, I applied for a job at Fulbright in mm -hmm. Jaworski, Fulbright, Crooker, Freeman, Bates at Jaworski it was in those days. And they hired me, which which was a great surprise. I didn't think that they would, but they did. And uh, they put me in the corporate section, so I did corporate law, um, public offerings, private placements, uh, the whole range of ways of raising money, borrowing money. Uh, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. Every day was good. Uh, they were very long days. Uh, th that section in the law firm had a huge volume of business and not enough lawyers to do it. So it was every night without fail and every weekend without fail. Uh, but I just loved practicing law. I loved what I was doing there. So... Uh that's. It seems like it's something that you either love or you hate. And I know a lot of our members on Law Review uh, do corporate work and securities work. Uh, what was it? Anything in particular that kind of created that passion within you for it? No, I like to see dynamic organizations and okay. how they work. Mm. And corporate lawyers are are usually, if they're any good, deeply involved in the in what's going on in their clients and business and we had a lot of clients and they were in widely differing businesses and it just fascinated me all these different businesses that I got a chance to see and be a part of uh, it, it was a great field to be in now I know Judge Miller was also um, uh working at Fulbright and Jaworski as well. Did you all overlap in your time there? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I could be wrong, but... Okay, so you did something uh, else that was uncommon for women at the time. Uh, you 
I mean, you worked a lot, you, you fell in love with the role, uh, but you also had three children and then went straight back to work afterwards. Um, right. So was that just who you are uh, or were you uh, making a statement in some way or? Oh, no. I mean, making a statement is, you know, there's there's no point in trying to do that. <laughs> um, no, I, I went back because, A, I was needed, thank God, uh, and, B, I loved it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I did have three babies and, you know, within, well, in the first one, I think I was out a month and the others, I was out a couple of weeks and went right back. And I enjoyed that. I mean, that was good. Well, I also enjoyed, I might add, being a mother. Mm -hmm. I loved having babies. My husband finally said, listen, we have to stop this. <laughs> you know, three babies are enough. Yeah. And that's certainly true. But, I mean, I think if he hadn't been strongly of that view, I might have had six or eight. <laughs> Uh, well, they're both very important work, and someone who can juggle them both is uh, its very admirable of you. So you were in that position at Fulbright and Jaworski for a while. Uh, did you end up making partner at the firm? No, I didn't. Um, I was there 10 years, uh, and you come up for partner in those days. Nowadays, I think it's less time than that. I think it's eight or seven, something like that. In those days, it was 10 years, so I came up for partner in 10 years, and they decided they weren't going to make me a partner which was an absolute unmitigated disaster as far as I was concerned. They were paying me at least as much as they were paying the men, and I think maybe more than some men were being paid. But I was working very long hours. I mean, they were certainly getting their money's worth, mm. but uh, they, they certainly never uh, caused me any problems while I was there. I mean, they paid me well. I got the best quality work that you could ever hope to have. So as far as I was concerned, it was a perfect place of employment. But I came up for partner, and they refused to make me a partner and never gave a reason, just said, nope, we're not going to do it. Hmm. That uh, must have been a huge disappointment. It, was a, it, was a, it really just was a terrible shock, number one, and no, because everybody made partner. This wasn't mm -hmm. a case of... You know, five people come up for partner and four of them don't make it and the fifth one does. This At this time in the history of Fulbright, everybody was making partner. So when you don't, don't make partner, especially when you're making more money mm -hmm. than most of the people you're dealing with, um, it was a real shock. I went to Charles Fortenbach, which was a smaller firm, about okay. 35 or 40 lawyers, um, became a partner there. Mm -hmm. uh, did corporate work. A lot of my clients came with me, which mm -hmm. was sort of a shock. Um, I certainly never asked anyone to come with me because I didn't, A, I wouldn't have thought that was proper, but B, um, I would also have thought it was a waste of my time because no one was going to come with me. Mm -hmm. I hadn't made partner. Why would they leave Fulbright? But uh, strangely enough, they did leave Fulbright and they came with me, most of my clients. So I still was doing the same work just at a different place. Yeah, it sounds like they were a little bit better judges of quality legal work than uh, the people who... I don't know, but they were certainly loyal, I'll yeah. say that. Uh, and then, so how did you end up in consideration for an appointment to the federal bench? I don't know. Well, <laughs> you know, President Carter wanted to appoint a woman from the western half of the circuit. Okay. And that was Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And uh, apparently, they, they had a screening panel that was tasked with finding 
somebody to fit this description. And I got a call from the guy who was the chair of the merit screening panel, who was also the managing partner of Baker Botts. My husband was a partner at Baker Botts, so he knew me. That was what that was useful for. Um, he asked me if I had any interest in being a federal judge, and I said, no, why would I do that? I mean, I'd never even been in a courthouse. Why, why would I... Oh. Why would I be a federal judge? As a corporate attorney. Yeah, no, I was a securities <laughs> lawyer. I did business deals. You know, why would I do that? Um, and uh, he said, well, not so fast. You know, the president wants to appoint a woman, and we've looked high and low. You had to, had to be 40. I was just 40. He, sa he said, there's no one else really in the western half of this circuit that's qualified. Five years from now, you know, it'll be different. But right now, you're it. And we we want you to think about taking this job. Well, I thought about it. I really, uh, I loved what I was doing. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I kept thinking, why, why would I give up what it is that I'm doing for a courthouse? You know, what securities lawyers, I mean, the object of a good securities lawyer is to stay out of a courthouse. Mm. And I was good. I stayed out of <laughs> courthouses. So why do I want to go and be in a courthouse now? Well, this Baker Botts partner persuaded me that that's what I needed to do, that the president wanted to appoint a woman and it just had to happen. So I thought, well, all right, I'll do this. And it never occurred to me that I would stay what's now been 40 years mm. Uh, doing it. I thought I would do it for four or five years and then I'd go back to practicing corporate law. It's a funny approach to a lifetime appointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The answer is I don't want a lifetime appointment. Yeah. I just want to, I'm willing to go do it, but I don't want to do it for life. Well, lo and behold, that's <laughs> what I've wound up doing. Yeah, it's an interesting theme, uh, just tracing this reluctance to sort of become a judge and then also your hesitancy to become a practicing attorney. Um, it seems like the jobs have called you uh, and lured you in, lured you in and then eventually you fall. Oh, in love when with I them. get in, you know, yeah. I'm in, I'm really in up to my ears and, uh, and I love it. I mean, I love what I'm doing. So what was that? Uh, what were those first few years on the job like since you'd never been in a courtroom? Uh, well, at least in an official capacity. I hadn't been in a courtroom, period. Oh, wow. Well, I say that um, I had been, my law firm biggest client uh, filed a Chapter 11 proceeding. So we hired bankruptcy counsel. We didn't have any. And so I went into courtrooms with bankruptcy lawyers. So I had been in a very big bankruptcy case, but I wasn't the first chair. I mean, other people did the talking, um, but I loved that. That was an interesting process. Um, but I, I simply, I, I hadn't uh, ever tried a lawsuit, mm -hmm. done any of the things you usually do in a federal courthouse. So what was that like then uh, when you became a, a, a federal judge and you were appointed directly to the Fifth Circuit? Right. Um, so was there a learning curve then? Yes. And um, i tell you what I decided shortly after I came on the bench. I decided that I would look around at the other judges who were on my court, figure out who was the pick of the litter, 
and ask that person to help me. Mm. Um, that's probably a novel approach. Um, but the, the, the judge who was the best was Alvin Rubin from Baton Rouge. And I asked him if he would help me. And he said, sure. Mm. So for the first year I was on the bench, every opinion that I did, I sent to Alvin Rubin. And it would come back all marked up. Mm. And the good news was over a period of several months, the markups got to be fewer and fewer. And finally, I got to the point where I didn't get maybe one or two red marks, and that would be it. So I had sort of graduated. Mm. And then he sent me a few of his, so I knew I had really graduated <laughs> then. That was wonderful. But, I mean, I don't know whether. I, th I think that I think it's unusual for someone to get appointed to the Fifth Circuit who then turns around and s looks at for the best judge on the court and then ask for help. But I think actually, in some respects, we'd be better off if more of them did. But, yeah. uh, but it was a great experience. He was a wonderful judge. I think most of the, our colleagues would have said he was the, he was the pick of the litter. Hmm. Um, he was a wonderful man, and he helped me. Finally, I got to the point where I you know, didn't have very many red marks on what I was doing, and he declared me graduated. So and it took really almost a year. Uh, and then uh, eventually, I mean, people were watching, and you must have been doing a good job because you eventually became the chief judge uh, of the Fifth Circuit. Well, that is a strictly an age. That is strictly a longevity uh, okay. decision. Okay. Um, and remember, I started out at age forty, which is quite young to to be on an appellate court. So I wound up as the chief judge, um, just by virtue of the fact that I had started young and I <laughs> stayed with it. Okay, well then you don't get any credit for the type, the work you did then. Uh, well, I hope <laughs> I don't need credit. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, it was important in one respect that you were the first female chief judge. Uh, is that of the Fifth Circuit or is that of any? Uh, I think of it's appeals? just of the Fifth Circuit. But okay. I, I don't know. There was a there was an there was another woman appointed, I think, to the Sixth Circuit before me. Um, I don't know whether she ever became the chief judge. I never followed it. Okay, so there are some notable um, problems or issues that you dealt with while you were the chief judge uh, of the Fifth Circuit. So uh, the the two that I'm thinking of, one, uh, there was a, a situation of over courts being over um, overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Yes, thank you. Uh, at the border. Yeah, we had, of course, a huge influx of cases along the border, um, not just in Texas, but all the way to California to San Diego. Um, we needed more judges. We need, in, in order to accommodate those judges, we needed new courthouses, uh, or more courthouses anyway, which was primarily new. Um, and that uh, took some, that involved, getting new courthouses involves uh, dealing with senators. You, because the senators are the one who get the money for you to build a courthouse with. So you have to figure out what senator can get the money for Texas, what senator can get the money for New Mexico, Arizona, California. Um, and so I made friends with judges in these other circuits along the border, and we scoped that out, figured out who our best bets were in terms of senators, 
and then made contacts with them and got the money to to build these courthouses all along the border. And, to, and in some cases, we didn't have to start from scratch. We were able to fix up an existing building. But it took a lot of effort to uh, ramp up our facilities. And I'm sure the, uh, the circuit is better for that. Uh, another thing that you were instrumental in was ensuring that uh, the district courts in the, in the Fifth Circuit had plans for hurricane and uh, natural disasters. Yeah, you know, that was sort of, I think about that sometimes. Um, we, get, you know, we routinely get hurricanes mm -hmm. in, in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And uh, I discovered nobody had a plan for dealing with those anywhere. So I got the chief district judges from all of the courts along the border into a group, and we decided we needed a sort of a common plan for how we were going to deal with these disasters. And, um, and then we needed um, personnel that, were, that would know how to do that. And we pulled together, all of us, and developed plans for dealing with disasters. You got to have a plan. I mean, none of these courts had a plan for mm -hmm. what happens when you get hit with a hurricane. You know, your people have to leave. Uh, so all of a sudden you go to a personnel from whatever it is, 100 in New Orleans to zero because they're all spread out all over Texas um, and some of them even further away than that. So how do you, how do you keep the court functioning when you can't, uh, use your own your regular base of operations and when your personnel are dispersed. We figured out how to do that. We had a plan in each court where that could be a problem. And um, thank God we had it. Was that, so did you come up with the plan then before uh, yeah. Hurricane Katrina? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we did. And then we, then we, you know, we revised it in the light of the experience that we had dealing with Katrina. Mm-hmm. But it was good to have a plan. And the main thing you have to do is your people immediately disperse to the four winds. And so you've got to be sure that they understand wherever they may wind up, Atlanta or wherever, that they are working for you. And so they have to report in and you figure out what you need to do, who you, who you need to have around you right away. And then they have to come and stay and uh, wherever you are in this case. Uh, with Katrina, we moved the whole operation to Houston, mm. which was a good thing to do because Houston is still driving distance from New Orleans. And on the weekends, these the people wanted to go back and see their houses and mm. see how much damage had been done and start making plans for uh, fixing it. So you need to be close enough so that they can go back on a weekend uh, but far enough away so that, um, you know, you're not in the path of dis destruction. All right, and our time's uh, pretty limited at this point, but there are two other things that I'd like to hopefully touch on. Um, one, so eventually uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist named you to the uh, to the executive committee of the Judicial Conference, right. and eventually you became the chair of that committee. Right. Uh, so one of your major accomplishments uh, on as chair of that committee uh, was to to implement a, a cost containment system for yeah. the courts. Yeah. Um, so what was that about? Well, it was because we had had this increase in personnel and so on during the that I was involved with also. Uh, but our costs were just going through the roof. 
And it just struck me that somebody needed to take a critical look at our costs and figure out where we could save some money. And so um, I chaired a committee that did that. We went and looked at the costs all across the whole uh, uh, circuit and, and, and across the country with a view to determining what we could cut out of our expenses. And we did, we cut quite a bit out. Um, because that's the nature of uh, organizations is that their budgets tend to grow over time. And every so often you gotta stop everything and take a look at it and decide what, what have we added that we don't need um, and what do we need? What, and maybe we haven't added it, uh, but take a critical look at how well the organization is functioning and how much money it's spending and des decide can we, can we cut some of this expense? And we cut a lot of expense. Uh, it was good that we did it. And I think you uh, mentioned that one of the justifications for doing so was so that Congress would feel more comfortable uh, allocating yeah. more money you know, to the courts. I have to say we sent over um, uh, one of our judges who routinely goes to Congress and asks for our budget every year. And this one year, she went over there and she had already given the senators uh, uh, our cost containment plan, which cut a fair amount out of our budget. And this one senator said to her right at the outset, well, we didn't ask you to do that. <laughs> and the answer is, no, you didn't ask us to do that. But we have to manage our own business mm -hmm. effectively from a cost standpoint. And so we did this on our own. Well, let me tell you, that uh, improved our standing with Congress Im immeasurably, that this agency, is, which is what we're viewed as, went out there and cut their expenses without even being asked to. So it was, it was a good experience and it, it helped us. That's great. Uh, so there are, you've, you've received a number of honors and awards from the legal community. Um, we can maybe detail those or go through them in, a, in another episode. Uh, but one thing I think might be important, and it clearly looks like it's important to you, um, is some of the work that you've done outside of the courthouse and outside of the legal community. So since there's not much time, I think I, I thought I might ask, is there one or two things that, uh, that you would like to highlight in terms of uh, what you think is important that you've been working on uh, well, outside of the Well, let court. me say, I think it's very important for a judge to be actively involved in the community. Uh, you can sit in this courthouse and you can really, in a way, be remote, and that's a mistake. Um, I have done a lot of work for the United Way, um, for the Houston Ballet Foundation, uh, for Baylor College of Medicine, um, the University of St. Thomas. I was board chair at the University of St. Thomas. I chaired a number of the major committees for all these organizations. One committee that I enjoy chairing is the finance committee. Get right in there with the money, <laughs> figure out what we're spending that we don't need to. Um, but I, I think you have to, you know, it's very easy when you're a judge just to stay in this courthouse and spend their, your time outside the courthouse with your family and be removed from the community and it's critically important that you be actively involved in the community that you do community service that doesn't just relate to the courthouse All right, i think that's a wonderful message and it's actually one that i hear from uh, other judges pretty consistently when uh, doing these interviews for the podcast um, so i'm happy that you all value uh, the, that community service uh, well 
Judge King, uh, on behalf of Houston Law Review and the University of Houston, just want to thank you so much for, one, your career of public service, uh, and two, for taking the time out to discuss uh, your life and, and your career with us here on the podcast. So thank you very much. And well, thank you. I'm glad to have been able to do it. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. Production is possible because of generous support from the Houston Law Review Alumni Association and from Vincent and Elkins. If you have thoughts on today's episode or suggestions for a future episode, email me at eic at houstonlawreview.org. Be sure to follow the Houston Law Review on Twitter and Instagram at HoustonLREV. That's Houston, L-R-E-V. Or find us on Facebook under the name Houston Law Review.